Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on self-care. Hello, I'm Bob Lee, and I'm here to talk to you about an important topic that can affect anyone in healthcare called second victim syndrome. I'm going to begin my presentation by reviewing three cases that illustrate how patients can sometimes be harmed by the care we provide. Dr. Patrick is an oncologist and he has a patient with lung cancer with multiple bony metastases and associated pain. He's been managing him with OxyContin but the pain is not controlled. He decides to change OxyContin 20 milligrams twice daily to methadone and orders 20 milligrams twice daily. Three days later, his patient's wife calls to report that he's lethargic and he seems to be breathing more slowly. Dr. Patrick is mortified when he realizes that he meant to order a total daily dose of methadone 20 milligrams rather than twice daily. Fortunately, his patient recovers after holding a few doses. My second case is a 42-year-old man who comes in for an epidural cervical injection for ongoing neck pain and radiculopathy. The procedure goes well, but after the procedure, the patient developed a spinal hematoma, which resulted in permanent paralysis. Unfortunately, pre-screening did not discover that the patient was taking a new anticoagulant. Days later, administration called the clinician to discuss the event, but it's never discussed again after that. The team continued working together, but they never acknowledged what happened or had a chance to debrief. No emotional support was ever offered to any member of the team involved. So this is Kim. She's a registered nurse with 27 years of experience. She made an error when calculating a dose of calcium chloride, which may have caused the death of a critically ill infant. Her employment was terminated. Disciplinary actions included paying a fine and a four-year probation, which included supervision for any medication administration in any future nursing job. She completed a certification to qualify for a flight nurse permission, but she got no job offers, fell into despair, and took her own life. Have you ever felt you harmed a patient? You felt horrible. You had an emotional response. Maybe your colleagues criticized you and you felt even worse. Did it have any consequences? Leave any scars? We all want to be the best possible clinicians we can be. Is what happened still bothering you today? Do you continue to think about or maybe even dwell on what happened? 
Well, I want you to know, you are not alone. Unfortunately, adverse events happen all around us every day. And of course, some are more bothersome than others. My objectives for this presentation are for you to be able to describe the consequences of being a second victim and to understand how we as palliative medicine providers can help recognize and support second victims and each other. So what are second victims? Let's start with the definition. Dr. Albert Wu initially defined the term second victim in his article, Medical Error, the second victim. The doctor who makes the mistake needs help too. This was published in the British Medical Journal in the year 2000. And in his article, he coins the term second victim, which he defines as those who suffer emotionally when the care they provide leads to patient harm. Dr. Susan Scott, who's written extensively on the subject, subsequently expanded the definition, which is now widely used in the literature as any healthcare provider involved in an unanticipated adverse patient event, medical error, or patient-related injury who becomes victimized in the sense that the provider is traumatized by the event. So I can think of many times over the past 30 years where something didn't go as expected with one of my patients and I still think about these cases all these years later. So whether it's a medication error, misdiagnosis, procedure gone awry, or some other adverse patient event, you may be experiencing second victim syndrome. So what are the common symptoms? Maybe you notice some physical symptoms like your heart's racing or you couldn't concentrate. Maybe your head is hurting all the time and you have a pit in your stomach and you just can't get a good night's sleep. Maybe you are so anxious or embarrassed that you couldn't go to work. Perhaps you found yourself arguing with your spouse or your kids. Maybe you feel angry, depressed, or isolated. Along with these common symptoms come some very common worries, like what is the patient and their family thinking? Have they been told? Am I going to be fired or sued? And what is everyone else thinking? Am I ever going to be trusted again? So why does this matter? Who cares? So what? Adverse events are very common and as I mentioned earlier happen all around us every day. It's estimated that 30 to 60 percent of healthcare providers 
will be a second victim after an adverse event. I think the percentage goes up the longer you practice. Adverse events can obviously change the life of the patient, but can also change the lives of the healthcare provider forever. After an adverse clinical event, there's a period of intense emotional distress. The distress can be overwhelming, and if you don't address it, it can be damaging to both your personal and your professional life. After an adverse event, clinicians are often distracted, which unfortunately increases their risk for errors. Without appropriate social and emotional support during this period of vulnerability, some healthcare providers will experience long-term negative consequences, which can lead to burnout and, believe it or not, even suicide, like we saw with Kim. So, how often does this happen? The American College of Surgeons published an article regarding medical errors and found that suicidal ideation in surgeons was twice the rate of the general population after a medical error. Another article published in Quality Safety Healthcare in 2005 found that 17% of physicians reported a significant impact on their personal life after an adverse clinical event. Not surprisingly, 100% of pediatricians need support after a patient's death. Susan Scott has found that second victims go through various stages on their road to recovery. I would like to go through these six stages of second victim recovery with you. The first stage is chaos and accident response, which start as soon as the error or adverse event occurs and results in distraction as well as a wave of emotion. Getting help for the patient immediately is obviously most important. But then the questions start. How did that happen? Why did that happen? It's important to realize that the second victim may not be able to continue caring for the patient. Stage two is called intrusive reflection and represents a period of haunted reenactments, often with feelings of internal inadequacy and periods of self-isolation. The second victim reevaluates the situation repeatedly with what-if questions. What did I miss? Could this have been prevented? The third stage is called restoring personal integrity. Many second victims suffer with consuming doubt regarding their professional career. One of the biggest challenges is overcoming personal reflections such as what will others think of me and will I ever be trusted again? 
unsupportive and negative. Departmental gossip intensifies self-doubt and erodes clinical confidence. It's important to develop a culture of support rather than blame and punishment. The fourth stage is enduring the inquisition. After stabilizing the patient and the personal reflections, there's an awakening that the institution will be reacting to the event in unclear ways. Unfortunately, many institutional responses to medical errors are hostile, threatening, and isolating. During this stage, the second victim may have to go over the case time and time again in peer review or with administration or even state medical boards or other licensing agencies. Second victims are often plagued by questions like, how do I document? What happens next? Am I going to lose my license or my job? Who can I talk to? How much trouble am I in? Stage five is called obtaining emotional first aid. To me, this may be the most important stage. Emotional support can be obtained in a variety of ways. Many second victims are unfortunately concerned about not knowing who is safe to confide in. Many seek support from loved ones, but are cautious when doing so because of privacy and legal concerns. Support can come from coworkers, supervisors, department chairs, or other peers. Unfortunately, the amount of support provided is often insufficient, causing negative feelings and symptoms to linger. The second victim continues to question themselves. Some felt knowing where to go for support and what could be said was never made clear. Stage six is called moving on and has three possibilities, which include dropping out, surviving, or thriving. Some second victims move on by dropping out. There is a push internally from the second victim and externally from coworkers to move on and put the event behind them. Many question their ability to handle the work, so some second victims transfer to another unit or another facility. For some second victims, the adverse event stays with them and they are unable to continue practicing. So I want to expand on dropping out a bit further. Jason Rodriguez and Susan Scott completed a study of clinicians that either dropped out or changed careers after being involved in an adverse clinical event. They found that inadequate institutional support leads to increased emotional labor, which can result in burnout. 
When the emotions workers feel don't align with what the institution expects, workers perform what is called emotional labor, which is a social psychological concept that describes how workers bring their emotions into alignment with what the organization demands. In other words, pen up or suppressed emotions take their toll on us and can eventually lead to burnout. In moving on, some are simply surviving. They're plagued by the event with ongoing intrusive thoughts and persistent sadness. They try to learn from the event but continue with feelings of guilt and failure. They repeatedly question, how could I have prevented this from happening? And why do I feel so badly? Some second victims can turn something bad into something better. These are the thrivers. Thrivers are able to maintain life-work balance, gain insight, and perspective from the adverse event. They don't base their career on one event, and they learn from the experience. The stages of recovery are not necessarily sequential, and many of them can happen simultaneously. It's important to realize that all this takes time and will be different for each person. Now, I'd like to talk about how we can help second victims. So, two nurses who were second victims at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, met with Susan Scott and Albert Wu in 2012 at a quality improvement conference where they learned about Susan Scott's second victim support model. When they returned to Nationwide, they teamed up with two pharmacists who had also been second victims and started the You Matter program. This video, produced by the You Matter team at Nationwide, talks about how second victims can be supported. I work in the emergency department and I see a lot of traumas and experience a lot of bad situations. You internalize a lot of, of the things you've seen and, and I always wondered kind of where it went. My worst day as a pharmacist was during a trauma, we, I was responding, preparing medications for a patient and we thought this patient had potentially a really bad adverse reaction to a drug that I had prepared. You have to consider the amount of pressure you're under. IV stick doesn't work. The, the med they're trying to drop, they spill it and they drop it on the floor. I feel a little catch in my throat because it makes me want to just, you know, run and hide. Here's this lovely family and this lovely little kid that I had inadvertently um, caused harm. Did I prepare this drug correctly? I was still having all these feelings of guilt and doubt. Chances are you've done the very best you could. I can still see some of the faces of the kids. 
must be a certain expectation that, well, you do this for a living, so you should be able to deal with it. I just needed a little bit of time to clear my mind and someone to talk to. You're just not expecting something quite so, so devastating. No one comes to work thinking that I'm going to make a mistake today. It just really stuck with me when I heard that woman say, this can't be my little boy. It, um, it was just really sad. We just need to make sure that we're taking care of our employees as well as our patients. So many people have a story and they need to get it out. I think having someone to, to, to help me see more clearly the events that have happened and understand that that I didn't do anything wrong. You become a victim of it yourself and that's hard to process if you don't have someone to go talk to about it. Sometimes we're not able to recognize in ourselves how we're feeling. That's why we have the You Matter program. This program was developed to support staff 24-7. I think there's a lot of benefits from the Second Victim Program. It's a peer support network, so it's really um, meant to be uh, first-line caregiver to caregiver uh, support. To have somebody at the moment or very close after it happened, I think is, is a really big benefit. Those that are offered a chance to work through their feelings in a supportive environment um, tend to do better. For all our culture is starting to change with this. People are starting to recognize um, others when they need a little bit more help. I've been approached several times uh, already since this program has been up and running. I um, have experienced more and more compassion about what we go through here at Children's. Badge Buddy that says you matter identifies those of us who've been trained. The second victim program means that there's someone here I can talk to and someone's shoulder I can lean on if I need it. And it also means that I can be that person for someone else. Now that we've heard personal accounts from staff at Nationwide, let's discuss Susan Scott's three-tiered interventional model. The first tier is the foundation and is literally everybody. Tier one involves awareness throughout a healthcare system where everyone learns the basics about how to be supportive. This starts on day one of your orientation. It's estimated that about 60% of second victim can be handled with first-tier local support. It's often helpful to just say something like, wow, that was hard. Are you okay? Tier two involves peer supporters that have additional training, specifically in how to support second victims. Tier one supporters may need to call for a peer supporter who then provides ongoing support immediately and then follows up and checks back with the second victim as needed. It's estimated that an additional 30% of second victims can be supported at this level. As palliative care providers, we have become quite good at listening and that is what second victims need the most. Someone to listen reflect, and support. 
The third tier involves expedited referral for professional support that includes clinical psychologists, employee assistance programs, social and chaplaincy services. Peer supporters are trained to look for and help expedite the need for professional support. It's estimated that about 10% of second victims may need professional support. Nationwide Children's Hospital developed the You Matter program in 2013, which is based on Susan Scott's experience at the University of Missouri. The You Matter program has been very successful at increasing institutional awareness. Their peer support program provides targeted, system-wide guidance for those in need of help after an adverse event. Second victim syndrome is part of orientation for all employees. They have trained over 700 peer supporters at their hospital and they have trained peer supporters from dozens of institutions. Second victims need a confidential and safe zone for sharing their experience and feelings. No notes are taken and no specifics about the support are recorded or reported. The peer supporter provides assurance that what the second victim is experiencing is a normal reaction. So, as palliative medicine clinicians, we can be particularly helpful because this is what we do every day with our patients and other clinicians that consult us. And just like with a patient, the peer supporter needs to listen and allow for silence. Restate, paraphrase, and reflect emotion. Pay attention to nonverbal cues. The goal is to create a culture of trust, compassion, and empathy, not only for our patients, but for each other as well. When supporting a peer, don't assume your experience is the same. Don't judge or try to fix. Listen and reflect. So when we're practicing palliative medicine, we use our whole team of social workers, chaplains, nurses, and clinicians to help support our patients. And we create an empathic and supportive environment. We use terms like meet them where they are and go from there. We provide support for our colleagues by using consultation etiquette when they ask us for help. But when we make a mistake, we need support too. We need to do the same thing for each other that we do for our patients and those who consult us. So we know that a supportive environment is essential to help those with second victim syndrome. We need to create a supportive and non-punitive environment. We need to inquire, not judge. 
Probably the most important thing we can all do is be aware this occurs and occurs often. Some adverse events are relatively minor and others can be catastrophic. The trouble is they can build up and affect us over time. We need to recognize the effect that these events have on us and each other. We need to find ways to support each other immediately when they occur. So, now I'd like to ask, how would you rate your current practice environment in terms of supporting second victims? Do you feel like you're able to share in a supportive, non-judgmental environment? Shouldn't we as palliative medicine providers be the ones to develop a program like this in all of our institutions. Together, we can help create this change. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.